am I ready? Live from the basement of Voodoo Sound, it's time to get your mojo working. I got my mojo working, but it just won't work on you. Take the next 40 odd minutes to get your hands on some tips and tools that will get you working at your best in both your business and your personal life. Hey everybody and welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Thanks for joining us. We know you had thousands upon hundreds of thousands of choices of a podcast you could listen to, but you chose our little show and we want to humbly say thanks for joining us guys. Thanks for hitting the download button. This show is about getting your mojo working, whether it be at home or at play, uh, working, school, college, sports ground, or working with your local community group. Anywhere you are doing anything, if you feel as though you need a little extra zip, pizzazz, bit of boost, this is the place. We just grab people who we think are really good at stuff, talk to them, extract their opinions, their tips, their tools, useful, practical stuff you can use in your world to get your mojo working. And sitting here in the studio, the man who is controlling the panel who is the blue tack of the whole operation here, the professional operation <laughs> that it is. <laughs> uh, Robo from Voodoo Sound. Talk it up. The How are you king, going, guys? The Lord of the Land. <laughs> I'm doing very, very well. That's it, the way. Uh, it's been a great week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, um, before we jump mm-hmm. into today's guest, and i got to say mm-hmm. this show, and I know I say it every week, mm-hmm. But we've never had an Academy Award winner on the show. No. This guy is... Nor will we ever win an Academy Award. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Don't put, don't put a ceiling on us, mate. Um, and the award for podcast... That's no, right. Actually, the award for the loosest podcast, podcast of the year goes, goes to... There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Didier Elzinger, who's our mm. guest today, mate, he's going to be a cracker. But yeah. before we start, um, do you have... Anything to get us into the show? Yeah, I do. Robbo's 20 cents worth. It's off Facebook, so don't judge me too much, but um, I found this kind of interesting. It's an an article that was published a while back, but it's the 20 habits of highly successful people. And look, knowing that you work with a lot of very successful people, I I didn't think we'd go through all 20, but I thought I'd throw the top five at you and see if they resonated in any way. Yeah, good. Okay, shoot. So number five, they have unique daily rituals like making coffee in a special way or meditating in candlelight before going to bed. I would absolutely concur with that. Um, There's actually a book written on the rituals of the famous people who've gone before us. Okay. The Churchills and Hemingways mm. and people like that. And I would say that I I think that's a, that is bang on the mark. And it's, it's yeah. actually one of the reasons why a lot of our guests, we do ask about rituals mm, because you absolutely. will find people who get stuff done yep. have systems and processes. And I've adopted this. I mean, I kind of had them personally, but I've actually made a point of setting a ritual. Yeah. Um, and I... I think it makes you healthier. It makes it makes it definitely more productive. It makes mm. your performance better. So mm. I, I go along with that. Cool. Number four, they're proud of their unique traits that make them stand out from the crowd. Mm, it's a good one, isn't it? Mm. Specialization, customization mm. is big in business today. And I think, you know, talk about, think back to some of the people that we have spoken to or those that are coming up on the show. The people who make their mark find their mojo and are living their dream really have found their thing, haven't they? Which I guess you could say is their unique trait. Yep, that's it. Agreed. But most people don't sit and think about it, certainly don't journal about it and don't 
take the time to say, if I was going to make something my passion, what is my unique trait? Like, what mm-hmm. is special about me? What do I love doing right. that I can put the time into being better than anybody else at? So yep. that's it. I think it's a goodie too. I like yep. it. Okay, you're doing good. Two for no, two. All right. Number three, they're driven <laughs> <at> <laughs> they're driven to action by the inner motor <laughs> rather than external triggers. Well, it's funny when I'm talking about mojo and those people or businesses that have mojo quite often people will say the one of the traits of people have their mojo working is that they might be a bit self-centric they might be a bit egocentric and mm. so on mm. but i think what you've just said driven by an action by the inner motor i think the inner motor is just a bit of confidence it's just an yeah. inner belief it's an inner desire it's a burn it's the passion it's just you know what yeah. this is what's in me if i don't do it i don't i'm going to die wondering so i'm going to have a crack so I think depending on how you frame it with your terminology, that mm. is a critical piece of getting your mojo working, isn't it? Yeah, and that's it. And that's that's the thing with a lot of these people we speak to. In fact, I can't think of anyone we've spoken to who's not, is they, they are highly confident, aren't they? Mm, mm. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, number but in two, their own way, mm. not, not an arrogant, yes. Yeah, yeah. Not, yeah, not in yeah, an yeah. arrogant way, absolutely. Mm. So number two, they never apply advice given without firstly consulting the guide within. Yeah, see... I, I think that's a critical one because we are driven by the voices around us. It's either the voices internally that program us mm. or it's we listen to external voices and choose to internalise them. Mm. So mm. I think anybody who's got their mojo working, you really need to work out whose advice or whose comments, suggestions you listen to. So, yeah. you know, generally it's very, very close mates and I call it your counsel. You know, who, who mm. are the people who, when, when, when the wheels fall off, who are the people walking in the door when everybody else is walking out the door? Mm. And mm. We, you need to have that counsel. Who are the people who really want to celebrate when things are good? If things aren't great, they're there to, 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 to sort of got you back and to get yeah. you back on track again. And you tend to listen to the wrong people and, and take on their advice, take on their beliefs. It can create ceilings for you. So I think that's an absolute beauty. You're really going to think about whose opinions do you really care about mm. and the rest are just bystanders. Absolutely. And the big one, number mm. one, they aren't afraid to express their opinions even though those opinions might be different from the opinions of the majority. Yeah, I reckon that's crap. <laughs> Just kidding. Damn. No. <laughs> I was walking to, working to the crescendo. <laughs> yeah, no. I was expressing my opinion. I think that's right. I think uh, the people and businesses that have their mojo working, they've, they've got a point of view. They've got, yeah. a, they've yeah. got an opinion and they, um, they live by it. And I think... It's interesting, a magazine rang me just yesterday to talk about the interview process, being a speaker, being a writer and some of the, my tips and tools. And mm. my number one, one thing is you've got to be authentic. And I think yeah. people today are crying out for an authentic voice. Yeah. And you want an authentic voice that means means well, but mm. it's just giving you the opinion that they believe is the most valid opinion without sugarcoating it. And yeah. um, sadly, many people take offense to that. Yeah. Um, it's because they don't want to hear it or they haven't got the guts to speak up themselves. But that's right. I think that's, um, I think it's a beauty, mate. And I think it's also, it's, it's, it, what's, this is a sideline. It's what you and I talk about all the time with our show. Mm. You know, we want to have an opinion. We want to do things. We want to create a show that we think is a cracking show, yep. not be dictated by the market or other top rating shows. So I mm. think, you know, in our own way, we kind of uh, we kind of live by these things. Absolutely. Indeed. 
it's interesting too that uh, even at the rugby club, you know, there are plenty of people who are happy to stand on the sideline and bag the way things are run and, you know, how you do things, yet they're the ones that never put their hands up for anything. Yeah. Yeah. How true. Same well, things in companies, same things in footy teams, yeah. Yeah, that's right. As you said, mate, we've got a cracker of a show this week. And uh, if I can pronounce our guest's name correctly once during the show, I'll be happy. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to say, I have got pages and pages of questions. Yeah. So this is going to be yeah. this is going to be a solid show. But I defy anybody at the end of this and go, "Wow!" Yeah. So let's yeah. um, let's roll. Getting your mojo working. This is the Mojo Radio Show. So you've actually been yakking to me about this interview for weeks. So, you know, you, you, you must have a bit of a background on this guy, surely. I've been following this guy for years. When I first met him, he was the CEO of a company called Rising Sun Pictures. Mm. And he and the company went on to win an Academy, like an Oscar, an Academy mm. Award mm. for technology for the movies he had worked on and the technology they created to do it. Mm. Um, He was super successful in his production company, working with the biggest names in Hollywood on the movies like The Charlotte's Web and all these Mm. fabulous um, movies that needed technology. Anyway, he then went on and he's now been the last five years working on Culture Amp, which is a software platform Mm. uh, that allows you to measure the pulse of your internal culture, like your people. Yep. And I kid you not, this guy and this company is going to sit up there with Airbnb and eBay and Twitter and the like in the years to come because he's very bright, he's a really good guy and um, what's really cool about this is he's an Aussie. So um, Didier Elzinger, mate, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Thanks, Gary. Pleased to be here. Mate, um, we're going to talk about a couple of things. I want to talk about Hollywood and your time working in the film industry, and then I want to segue across to Culture Amp because I'm really interested in the work you're doing with Culture Amp now and where that fits in our world of business. But um, if we just start with the Hollywood thing, which I've always been fascinated with, you spent 14 years working on feature films, dealing with Hollywood, dealing with producers and special effects. Can you just think back to that time and... Well, what were the learnings you took out of Tinseltown? <laughs> um, so it was almost 14 years, 13 and a half years. And, it, you know, Hollywood is an amazing place. Um, it has incredible highs and incredible lows. Uh, I think I'll never have to work as hard again as I did working for Hollywood. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the amount of time, the number of times you pull all-nighters, the number of times you you push everything and all the people around you push to get something done is incredible. Um, sometimes it's to produce something amazing. Sometimes you, you sort of have to wonder why you went through all that effort. Mm. So I guess one thing I definitely learned there, there was, there's two pieces to it. I mean, one was what it meant to really go after something and to be really passionate about something and to be willing to put everything on the line for it. Because, you know, even when you watch a Hollywood film that you might not think is very good, the the amount of of talent and inspiration and creativity that goes into creating that is phenomenal. Mm. Um, so you know that was inspiring to be around. And then the second piece was to be able to do it from Australia. So you know to be able to to work on those films and to be part of those films um, on the other side of the world. I guess sort of fundamentally changed the way I thought about business because you know from that point on, what why would I go and try and build something that would only cater to a local market? 
when there's these, you know, you, if you want to compete, you want to compete against the best. You pick wherever mm. that field is, and usually that's somewhere else in the world. And you walked away with an Academy Award during your time at Rising Sun, didn't you? Yeah, well, the, the, the software company that, uh, that I co-founded with the founders of Rising Sun Pictures, Rising Sun Research, we created a product called CineSync. Uh, that product won a Technical Academy Achievement Award. So that was, they're the sort of the technical Oscars, if you like, and they're given out for, yep. for the achievements that people make um, in, in software or in uh, technology in general. Um, it's, you hear people talking about Hollywood and how hard it is to make it and you hear about the deals that are done. In your time at Rising Sun and you were dealing with Hollywood and you were doing these big deals, do you, do you remember any learnings you took out of it in terms of the art of negotiation that you took from Hollywood that you are now using with Culture App? <laughs> um, a little. Um, Hollywood is definitely a study in power dynamics. Um, so it's, it's an ex- the negotiation is obviously implicit and there's a lot mm. that can be learnt negotiating. Uh, but I remember Jeff Oaken, who was our first American, the first supervisor that we worked with on an American film on the film Red Planet, and he, he's a bit of a legend in the field. And he, I, I was impressed when I met him because he did the title sequence for a film called The Last Starfighter, which is a very old sci-fi film, uh, mm. which I grew up watching. And he, I asked him one day for advice. I said, what advice can you give us? And he said, I'm going to give you the same advice that my neighbor gave me when I joined the film industry. And the advice went, let's see if I can remember, something like this. You don't need the experience. They won't make it up to you on the next one. And it won't be a lot of fun. <laughs> And the number of times I had to sit there while somebody on the other side said, like, come on, you know, you just you just need to do this. You need that experience, and then you'll be able to build on it. And I promise I'll make it up to you next time. And, and anyway, it's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> See, like, isn't that, that is yeah. gold, mate. Did the number of times as a corporate speaker you get the call up saying, we don't have a lot of money, but this will be really good because it'll get you in front of all the people in our company and there's definitely going to be more work that will follow for it. And you don't fall for that chest yeah. very often. It's exactly the same as what you said. That uh, that's gold there, mate. So tell me something, Didier. With um, with working in Hollywood during that period and working with special effects, which and and the work you've done and the movies you've worked on just is a is a fantastic bio in as part of your career. Did it have an effect in your mind on your own creativity and imagination that you can now apply to Culture App? I guess there's an aspect of spending all that time working on creating images that certainly sticks with you. So there's a visual component that you stay with. But probably the, the, the biggest thing is what Hollywood does really well is tell stories mm. and they understand the power of the story. And, you know, almost everybody who works in Hollywood has a treasured copy of um, Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces, The Power of One, which is the, you know, a, a blow-by-blow account of how story and narrative works. And when you, you come over to Coltrane or to any business, that's the thing that's been the most powerful for me is that, you know, whatever you're doing, you're telling a story. And getting the story right drives everything else. 
Mm. And so that's been transformational for me. That you know, to think about that and to look at that and to to understand that it's. Uh, I think Simon Sinek made the comment in his TED talk: people don't buy what that you're selling; they buy why you're selling it. Yeah. And understanding that and being able to tell that story is critical. So that's such a good point. Is there a storytelling tip that Hollywood knows that you could apply to the corporate world? So we're sitting in a meeting. We're surrounded by marketing or brand managers or a CEO who needs to bring something to life. Were there any, do you recall any storytelling tips that you took from that time that you could immediately apply to a corporate scene? Hmm. Uh, well, uh, maybe a, it's, it's not a tip necessarily that somebody can use, but it, it's an insight. Um, I was at a, a thing where a guy got up and he was talking. There was a room of about 30, 40 people at the table. And he got up and he said, I'm going to talk about storytelling. And he said, what I want you to do now is I want you to consciously ignore me. So you can read your phone, you can read your email. Don't talk because, you know, it makes it a little difficult for everybody, but just consciously ignore me. You do not have to listen. I want you to actively not listen to me. And then he started to tell his story. And he told it for about 10, 15 minutes, or about 10 minutes. And at the end, he, he, he ended it and he said, okay, who was able to ignore me for the entire meeting, the entire time? Nobody put up their hand. And basically everybody admitted that within a minute they couldn't ignore him. They had to listen. Mm. And he told this very interesting story. And his point was story is so powerful. There's a whole chunk of our brain that is dedicated to understanding story. And we recognize a pattern. And so there is an arc to mm. most stories. Mm. There's, you know, uh, understanding, connecting with somebody who's normal, just like you, then something happens that puts them in a difficult position. And then there's the drop down and then there's the redemption. And those sorts of concepts are powerful, not because they're nice or neat or anything. They actually go deep into your psyche and deep yeah. into what it means to be human. So his point was, once you understand that, and this is what advertisers and, and marketers know very, very, very well, mm. you, can, you can, to a certain degree, you can play with the payload. And what I find really interesting is people often say to me, oh, well, you know, we need to demonstrate the return on investment on stuff. But bollocks. ROI is cognitive dissonance on a decision you've already made. You, nobody makes a decision because of return on investment. <laughs> People make a decision because of an emotional thing that they've accepted, and then they use ROI to make sure that that yeah. decision makes sense. It's almost justified. It is, yeah. Mm, and, and that's mm. the thing you have to remember is that it's very easy for us to fall back on going, I'm going to convince somebody with numbers. You don't yeah. convince people with numbers. Yeah. You convince people with passion and with mm. story. And then you give them the numbers to make sure that they can cross-check themselves. It's such a beautiful segue um, because I want to talk about Culture Amp. Can you – just two parts with that because I want to follow on from that train of thought that you have just created this amazing platform called Culture Amp. So for the listeners, maybe just give them a snapshot of what Culture Amp is. But what I'd like to know after that is to say that this is the thing you are doing. What was what 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 is the dream or what was the dream? And what was the story you used to sell to the people who are now around you who are creating this really is a, 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 just a fantastic, fantastic product, which is getting world acclaimed. So just explain sort of what it is in a rudimentary term so we get it, but then also in creating it, what was the dream and what did you sell to those people who believed in you to start the journey? Culture Amp, in a, in a very simple sense, is a 
survey and analytics platform for people and culture. So we help people run surveys and we help people analyse the results of those surveys so they can make better decisions about people and culture. So, you know, in some forms, that's extremely dull. <laughs> you know, people live there, uh, okay, you know, part of the reason that the opportunity existed is because people hate surveys. Yeah. But the, the dream or the vision behind that, um, which was... You know, the one that I started with, but not just the one that I started with, it was also what my three co-founders had too, and we came came together around it. So when I was at Rising Sun, I used to joke that I was, as a CEO, I was a glorified psychiatrist. <laughs> you know, my job was to help people and think about people and culture. And so I, when I decided to do something different, I wanted to do something in that space. Uh, I happened to Software development is my background. I became good friends with Mike and Scott from Atlassian and, and, and watched in awe as they built their software business and thought, I want to build a business like that, but the thing I'm really passionate about is people and culture, so how do I do it? And there was a couple of things that, that came together. So it was about this belief in the world of work as being a different place, that we could create a better place and that we could make better decisions about how we, 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 we work together. Um, but also a desire to do it at scale. So oftentimes a lot of organizational development is it's very good, but it's delivered by consultants to companies and, mm. and largely just the large companies. And so very similar to Atlassian, I was looking at that thinking, well, why should I build a company that can do something for, for a bunch of Fortune 500s? What about building something for everybody else? What about building mm. something for tens of thousands of companies who can use it? And that for me was the bit that really got me excited. And, and where we are now is this idea that Cathy Sierra, who's a user experience person, likes to say, um, don't just try and build a better tool, create a better user. And what mm. that means for us is don't just build a better survey platform, create more people geeks. And so this mm. is a phrase that we use to... Uh, connotate both our, our tribe in the Seth Godin sense. Our tribe is people geeks. They care yeah. about people and culture, but they want to approach it in a new way. They want to gather data. They want to try things. They want to you know, iterate and be agile about the way they think about it. And so our mission as a business and the, the dream and the vision and the story that we all buy into is that we can make better people geeks and we can make lots of them. Do you, just on that, you mentioned, um, and you and I did a, a, a the gig on stage with Scott Farquhar, who I thought was just fantastic, and I know you're a, you're a big fan of Atlassian and what he does. When I think of Scott and Mike or I think of um, uh, Brian Chesky at Airbnb or um, Phil, was it Libin from Evernote or Matt, I heard an interview with Matt Mullenweg, the guy who founded WordPress mm-hmm. and has now created um, Automatic. And these are big, big companies that have come in the last sort of decade and are changing the way we do things. Are you and your three founders, are you seeing that Culture Amp could sit on my list to go, we see ourselves being based in Australia but having a product that sits very comfortably alongside Airbnb or Evernote or Automatic or the likes? Is that, is that part of it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, happy to call three of those four clients. Mm. And the problem is well, the, the, the space that we're playing and the thing that we're doing is becoming more and more important. Um, so... You know, people are understanding that there is a lot of opportunity to improve the way we, we work on that side of the business. Um, we are very successful on the moment in the Valley because I think there's just this incredible concentration on, on talent and how to make it better, but it's not just there. I mean, we're, we're seeing 
um, incredible retail businesses. So, you know, I, one of the things I say, partly which I stole from you, Gary, uh, yeah, brand brand is a promise to a customer, and culture is how you deliver on that. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that fascinates me is that for retail businesses, their ability to deliver on their promise to a customer is in the hands of a 16-year-old that's been working to working for them for four weeks, works 10 hours a week, and is leaving in six months. Mm. So everything they can do to create a culture which allows that person to deliver the brand is critical. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, we're now working with some really great um, retail businesses who are incredibly focused on, on the culture side of the business. Is it fair to say the Valley has led that? Is it fair to say these new... I'm not even going to call them startups because they've now been going for a decade and they're worth, you know, a billion, <laughs> $3.3 billion and so on. Um, but it just seems that internally is a different feeling or a different culture. They just do things where they, they talk differently and they interact differently and the environment's different. Do you think that sort of, and I call it the valley that you've just mentioned, because your client list is, you know, Etsy and, and what, Box and Clout and Uber and Pandora. I mean, you've got a pretty super impressive lineup. Is that now filtering into some of the more mainstream businesses that you and I would know on, you know, High Street Australia and or manufacturing or industry? Is it, has, it, has it started to, to filter over yet? Yeah. So, I mean, we definitely see it broader. I mean, we have mm. a, a trucking company in the Midwest as a client and High Street businesses and, and so on. But I think what the Valley and use that term loosely to describe all of these mm, yes. sort of fast growth yeah, new tech yeah. companies. And I think there's two reasons. One is they've become aspirational. So they've, you know, 20 years ago, there were amazing companies being built in the Valley, but the rest of the world wasn't looking at them and going, wow, I wonder what we can learn from that. You know, and the Facebooks and and so on have changed that. And so now when the world wants a reference, when they want a a best practice, if you will, they look to the Valley. Mm. And so that's been part of it. I think the other thing which is, is true is that because of the hyper growth, these companies are going through in three years what other companies go through in 20. And so the learning, the pace of learning is just so extreme. It's mm-hmm. generating proportionally more than you might expect mm-hmm. for, for the size of the, of the companies or the, you know, the revenue that they generate or anything like that. But for everybody else, it's, it's fascinating because we get to watch what happens when you, <laughs> when you try and do all of these things in such a compressed period of time. Mm-hmm. And, I think, you know, the third piece, which is is possibly, uh, you know, a broader shift, is most of these companies are built on top of things that require, uh, where the opportunity for outperformance is quite high. So we're not talking about businesses where even if you knock the ball out of the park, you're 1% better. Yes. You're talking about places where they're 10,000% better if they get it right. Yep. And so... You know, we you know we think about that a lot, and I think that's broadly that's the whole shift to knowledge work. You know, uh, was, was it Henry Ford said, "Why is it when all I want is a pair of hands, I get a brain attached?" <laughs> and at that time, that was the nature of the labour market, and that's mm-hmm. what you wanted. And honestly, the difference between a really good set of hands and a not so good set of hands might be double. But for a lot of the work and an increasing amount of the work now, the difference between a really good mind. And an okay mind might be 2,000 times, mm. 200 times, 20 times, depending on the industry. But there's huge opportunity there to engage the mind. So um, I just came from a, giving a, a speech this morning um, on Mojo. And 
If I've got an audience in front of me and I've got a partner of a law firm, I had a guy who's in manufacturing, I had a guy who's working with the mines up in WA, a guy who works in recruitment and so on. So an eclectic bunch of CEOs and you and I are very familiar with that sort of boardroom when you're presenting. Are there any... What would be the what would be the immediate tips? So t- let's say when we we let's call it the Valley or Silicon Valley or you know the new the new media the new brand world of brands. Say say that to, to bunch these guys together. If you were talking to the people who are in the law firms and doing sheet metal work and so on, if you're talking to the leader of an organisation who says, you know, I want to be at the forefront. I want to make a difference. I want I want this to be better for my people. Are there any key takeouts you would take from the stuff you're learning from the early adopters in the Valley and the clients you've got that would resonate and could immediately put into place or at least a thinking process someone needs to be aware of in their own culture, in their own backyard here? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, there's a sort of maturity curve on this, if you like. And and before I go into some of the insights we've got, you know, I, I got asked a question after I presented the guy got up and he, he said, look, you know, I love what you talked about, uh, this whole idea of sort of what I was talking about just before, that um, we need to shift from the industrial age of thinking about how we work with people to a more modern way of doing it. But he said, but do senior executives really think like that? Do they really care about people and culture? And I said, well, look, my view is that 20 years ago, if you walked into a boardroom and talked about brand, the way we talk about brand today, you would have been laughed out of the room. Yep. But if you're on a board now and you don't have those conversations about brand, you're not on the board for very long. Mm, it's shifted. You, you mm. see what marketing has mm. achieved in the last 20 years. It's, mm. it's, it's orthodoxy now. Nobody would question that that the brand value is one of the most important assets on the, on the balance sheet. I believe that HR, people, culture, whatever you want to call it, is... 10 to 15 years behind marketing. And so you go into some places and you talk about it, you will absolutely have people that say, I don't want to talk about this. They should just be happy they've got a a job. But there are also an increasing number of places where they're sitting down talking about it going, "You you know what? If we're going to be successful over the next three to five years, we have to, or next 10, 15 years, we have to find ways to improve how we interact with our people, how we access that, how we make this a place where the best people want to be. So at a high level, I think stuff's shifting that way. And what we see when we we look at talking to our customers and say, well, how could you relate that back to your own? I guess the first thing is just to accept that that people and culture matters. Mm. You know, if if you don't accept that, then the rest of it's pointless. And you know, I've had conversations with businesses that some of them are tech, some of them not, that might be, uh, that were, you know, more traditional. And I've had interesting conversations with people where we looked at the results and so said, okay, well, here's how people feel. And, you know, you just look at the numbers and say, you know, what this means is that three years from now, only one in 10 people are going to still be here. And they're like, really? And you're like, yeah, you just do the numbers. This is how mm. people feel. Mm. X percent of people want to leave this year. By the time you get there, there's only going to be this many people left. And they're like, oh, okay. And then you look at the numbers and you explain it to them. And the thing is, people have been feeling that way for years, but nobody's actually bothered to tell them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nobody stopped. <laughs> and even these hard-bitten people actually turn around and say, actually, this is not the business I've set out to build. And, you know, this is not 
I think mm. people's acceptance that the world's changing faster than maybe they're used to is opening people's mind up to the fact that they possibly have to do things they haven't been comfortable doing in the past. So the first thing we learned from all these businesses, which is true to any business, is you actually do have to care and you have to look at this and say, all right, the first thing is we need to measure whether or not we're able to do this because we have to believe it matters. And once you do that, the next thing is you start to realize well, what are the things that actually make that happen? And they're actually fairly similar for a lot mm, of companies. Mm, yep. You know, they're things that people might expect. Um, they're around, do you have, a, 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 are you motivated by the vision of the company? Mm. You know, one of the classic ones is we spend all this time running around telling our staff that we want to be the dominant player in industry XYZ or we're going to turn over Z billion dollars or we're going to grow inventory by, you know, not grow inventory, reduce inventory, grow cost, or we're going to re- deliver a roki of, of blah. It goes back to the Hollywood thing. What's the story? Why does us being the market leader make any difference to a person sitting on the floor? Mm. Why would they care? And so one of the things that, that all the companies we talk to are grappling with is not do you have a vision. Most companies have a vision. And most companies have even communicated that vision. But how have you translated that vision into a story and language that somebody working on whatever level of your company can take and own and be proud of? That's one of the biggest drivers of engagement in in the new tech. It's also one of the biggest drivers of of engagement in, in all companies. And some old old tech, if you want to call them that, companies do that really, really yeah, well. Yeah, um, yeah. Most don't. <laughs> I don't know if you remember Gary, but um, when Gary and I were working for a certain radio network here in Australia, Didier, um, <laughs> we were taken over by a large corporate, and um, and the new boss walked into the radio station in the network that I was working at and proudly pronounced that um, their vision that was the two, the two stations that they owned were going to be number one and number two in the marketplace. And they decided that the station <laughs> that I happened to work and work at was going to be the number two station. <laughs> so, so I was asked to come to work every morning and work for 14, 15 hours a day going, yay, I'm going to make my radio my station radio the number station. two station in the network. <laughs> And I never quite got my head around that. And you can see how well that worked with the F1 teams. Yes, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'll tell you what, in hindsight, Robbo, you can see where that ended up today because um, those stations are on their, <laughs> on their knees, brother. Yes, I mean, that's uh, right. The numbers are in the book, aren't they? <laughs> very, very good point. <laughs> and, 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 the, 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 and that's a really good point because the, the funny thing about all of this, it's all about translation. It's not about the vision itself. So let's take that example. If what they'd done is they'd come in and said, okay, we now have this fantastic opportunity to rather than just having to, you know, go to the lowest common denominator to win the ratings battle, we're going to create one brand which gets the ratings battle and that's going to allow us to create this other great brand which can go places that we weren't able to go before mm. and create this differentiated gorilla brand and we're going, to, we're going to own the whole space and both places are going to be amazing. You know, here's the big one that does covers all the, the mainstream stuff and then here's this edgier one that we sit to the side yeah. that can go in other places and people would love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, hey, we would have loved that, wouldn't we, Robert? I would have loved it, absolutely. <laughs> Let me tell you, it wasn't long after that I was out the door. <laughs> <laughs> And looking back yeah, now, exactly. and looking back now, and giggling. Hey, um, yes. Didier, just so people can get a handle on Culture Amp, um, 
I, I guess in a way, you know, what you're talking about here is kind of behavioural profiling in that you are able to pull information from a business and say, look, based on the profiles we're seeing, you're not going to have many people left in X amount of years, right? So is that based on numbers or is it? Yeah, it's not quite that sophisticated. Um, So uh, what we're not doing is trying to create a model where we say, you know, you've got people that have this psychometric or psychoassessment model. What we're doing, we're doing what you do in marketing. We're just asking questions and listening to the answers. So if you want to know if people are going to leave, you ask them. So you ask them a question like, um, I rarely think about looking for a job elsewhere. And then if 50% of your people aren't looking for a job elsewhere, that tells you. If 20% of your people aren't looking for a job elsewhere, that's different. And the same thing, you know, I can still see myself here two years from now. That tells you what percentage of people can still see themselves in the yeah. job, you know, working at this company. And those numbers are elite. And one of the things we often say to people is there's a huge science behind this. And that's why our first hire was a, a PhD in psychology. He's actually a scientist. Um, but when it comes down to it, it's not about a psychologist in an ivory tower telling you what makes people happy. The best companies, and I'll keep going back to branding because it's very similar, the best companies, it's an intentional description of the experience they want their people to have, and then they measure it. So they think about how do you want people to feel in your company, and then they construct questions or use questions that have been already constructed that help describe that reality and then they find out whether it's true. And then they realize, hey, we're doing really well over here, but over here it's not working either because we have the wrong manager or we haven't got the right support or we don't give them the things that they need. And so it's that process of intentionally describing what the experience that you're trying to create. So it's cool. what was it called? The intentional description. Yeah, I mean, that, that's what I talk to people about. I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's survey design, so it's, it's constructing surveys. But if you think about it in a brand or a marketing context, and I use this because people tend to find it a little easier, what the good companies do is they're really clear about how they want their customer to feel. Oh, and then they use market research to understand whether that's being achieved. So, you know, Mercedes asks its clients what they think about the clunk of the door because mm. it's important. Mm. They want their clients to get that reassuring, expensive feel when they close the door. It's the same thing with your culture. How do you want your people to feel? Do you want them to feel energized? Do you want them to feel... Um, inspired? Do you want them to feel like they are allowed to screw up? Um, do you want them to feel like uh, the stuff that they're doing matters? These are all things that you can then ask and measure and use to help you understand what's going on. What's um, what's your view on? Str- this is going to be a very broad question, but I'm interested in your view on how you see strategy and how you see strategy today for you internally at Culture Amp. Are there any, have you made any adjustments now that you're on this journey with Culture Amp? Have you made any adjustments to your view on strategy as you formerly knew it? Whew, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, we've definitely changed strategy as we've gone along. Uh, you know, you one of the things that uh, Scott actually said to me once, which I thought was a really good point, was he said, look, the only thing that you can do as a startup better than an existing company, you can learn faster. Mm. And so using that and thinking about that, your advantage is you can learn faster and therefore, you know, it's only real learning if you can use it and that usually means changing your strategy. So you, you develop what you think is an appropriate strategy, you go out there and you test it and you find ways to, to break it and if you need to change it, you change it and you try and do that faster than anybody else can. 
and you you put that up. And that's actually almost a core value for us, the idea that, well, it is a core value for us, the idea that um, learning, learning comes over everything else. So, you know, rather than theoretical efficiency, we organize the company around how we learn cross-functional rather than uh, functional teams, those sorts of things, because learning is so important. So the the strategy has definitely changed. Um, I I spent a lot of time talking about strategy. I spent a lot of time thinking about strategy. (laughs) It's one of those things that's deceptively simple and hard at the same time, Mm. like, you know, for all the talk, it's actually a lot of what passes off a strategy is not strategy. It's actually yes. just detailed planning. Yeah, tactics, yeah. yeah. Yeah, my favorite definition of strategy, which is it's just kind of abstract, but I like it, is strategy is a pattern in the allocation of resources. Mm, nice. So it's it's a thematic or it's, it's, a, it's a way of thinking, well, we have these resources in the company. How do we decide where to put them? Uh, how do we decide what order to do things in? And strategy is what happens when you do that, and it's about trying to, to articulate that and do it. And, and for me, the hardest part is getting to the core of it and getting the idea drifted. So I'm always a, a big fan, and I always love reading about it when people are able to encapsulate strategy beautifully. So like one of the great examples of doing that, um, which is used a lot in the business press, is the, is the old Southwest wheels up strategy, yeah. where they were able to get everybody in the business to understand that their strategy was to basically be more effective, get the plane in the air. Everything Mm -hmm. gets put second to getting the plane in the air, and that drives the whole strategy. And so I think, you know, that's the beauty of it and the power of it is that when you can understand your product, your company, your position in the market and where the market's going to such a way that you're able to boil it down to a simple thematic or idea that everybody can use and say, okay, this is what we're going to do. And there's a whole, obviously a whole model that flows off that, but we're not constantly trying to check 27 different things and line them all up so that they all work perfectly. We're just like, we have to achieve this idea, and if we achieve this idea, we will win. We had somebody in the program, Robert, who was it? Was it Bart Polak or Glenn Capelli or might have been Matt Church that talked about if you can't put, if you can't draw your strategy in the back of a napkin, it's too difficult. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm a believer of that. Yeah, that was Cap. Yeah, it was gold. And he said, if you can't, because he was a great, you know, visual person, he said, you should be able to draw it in stick figures and <laughs> because that way anybody can get it. So um, is it fair to say, Didier, that your philosophy on strategy is to keep it simple? Yeah, although I think it is one of those, uh, it's like the old um, chaos science line, uh, on the other side of complexity lies simplicity. Yeah. You, you don't, simple is nice, um, but it, it, it does need to come from very deep thinking. It needs yes, to yeah, come yeah, from... Yeah. from fully understanding what it is you're doing and having looked at a lot of stuff. And one of the other lines somebody said to me, which has always resonated with me, is the idea that your your strategy is as good as the one you chose not to do. And so it, it is also about going, well, there's actually four viable strategies for us here. And we're going to do this one, but the reason we know this one is good is because we actually explored that one and we could make that one work. We just think this one's better because it's very easy to fall in love with a strategy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. And is it fair to say that I totally agree it needs deep thinking and one of the, one of the boards that you and I work on, the founder of that company said that you know, he believes that a strategy takes a number of years to come to mind rather than just a weekend away. And I've never, never forgotten yes. that. However, the explanation or the selling into your culture, to your people at every level, 
should be able to be done on the back of a napkin so they can take the complex thinking but demonstrate simplicity so they can rem- do, get it, remember it, and execute on it? Would that be fair? Uh, it is, although I think when people talk about that, there's, there's this sort of implied idea that all the hard work went into creating the strategy and then it's just the easy execution work. Yeah. And so there's this sort of, um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's an implied thing that everyone has. Oh, you know, I, I just want to do the, I want to get paid for the hard work. That's, you know, that's what the, the, the senior execs do. One of the things I learned from lean thinking, which I love, is this idea of gemba, which is, a Japanese word for where the work happens. And mm. one of the fundamental ideas in the Toyota production system is that improvement should exist, should happen where the work happens, not in a room off to the side with the bright people redesigning the processes. Yeah. And so when you think about this, is strategy important? Absolutely. You know, and, and it takes an enormous amount of effort and energy to get to the point where you can see through all of it and see that core idea and just think, Ignore the distractions. Focus on this. If we focus on this, we will win. That is really, really powerful. But it's equally valuable, just as important, not above or below, to be able to take that simple idea and go use it in every situation that the business exists in. So I think that's the equally important thing. Often when you look at a lot of the traditional strategy stuff, it's kind of like the, cool, all right, we've now done the hard work as the executives. We'll just leave the, 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 the mindless tedium to the plebs and they can, we'll now go give ourselves bonus. Actually, yeah, great, you've got the strategy. Fantastic. Now the hard work begins. Now yeah. you've got to work out how to apply that strategy to a million yeah. different things you couldn't have possibly thought about. Yeah. Folks, we're going to pause for a quick break. We are talking to Didier Elzinger, who is the founder and CEO of Culture Amp. We're talking strategy and people and culture, and we're just going to give you a quick chance to take a few notes. Um, and we're going to introduce a brand new segment. It's called Pause for a Cause. And any of our listeners who are involved in any charitable organisation or, in fact, anything that helps other people and you'd like to spend 30 seconds telling our audience about your cause, you can let us know through our website and we will run this segment for you where you get a chance to plug what you're doing to help others. It's called Pause for a Cause. Robbo, run the promo. Here it goes. It's half time on The Mojo Show. And time to pause for a cause. Hey guys, my name is Soren Molino from Smile Clothing. Uh, we're a one-for-one company based uh, in between Australia and Indonesia. For every garment we sell, we donate a school uniform or a t-shirt to a child in need. Uh, please feel free to check us out online at www.smileclothing.co or through any other channel you can find on the internet. Thanks very much. The Mojo Radio Show. You put a lot of thought into that name, didn't you, Gaz? How long did that take you? <laughs> 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 like, <laughs> when in doubt, you go to the coffee machine. <laughs> if it rhymes, it's got to work. <laughs> no, I just... The, <laughs> the reason I liked it, the thing, mm. my thinking process was that there are so many great causes out there that we just don't know about. And Soren from Small Clothing, man, I just love this concept. In fact, I'm going to get him on the show all the way from Indonesia because mm. his stuff, is just, folks, just Google Smile Clothing. Look at the story, the photography. It's just, mm. and I thought, you know, there's so many people out there and I, I do work for the Tour de Cure and we're always after someone to, to share our message. And I thought, mm. well, 
we could do that. And um, <laughs> the very creative name popped out the back of it. Ah, <laughs> uh, it all works well. So we're talking to Didier Elzinger um, about all things to do with culture and mm. people and strategy. And um, let's get back into it, hey? Yeah. So, so Didier. How important is it to recognize that a strategy isn't working? Like we, you said a minute ago, a strategy is something easy that, that's easy to fall in love with. When should we fall out of love with it? When should we go, mm, maybe this isn't quite right? Like, should we, at the first signs or, or, you know, should we give it a chance? Or, I mean, I know there's, you know, it's horses for courses, but are there indicators that perhaps we were wrong? Um, that reminds me of another saying that I, I, I love and live by, which is, what matters is how many people. What matters is how many people believe in you, not how many people don't. So, for me, if it was self-evident and it was going to work really easily, and you were not going to get anything that told you it wasn't a good idea, it's probably not that good a strategy because somebody, you know, it's unlikely that nothing exists for very long that can't be, you know, exploited in that way. So, most good strategies seem like really bad ideas to start with. And it, it required some. Look at something like Uber or something like that. When mm. they started, everybody thought they were bonkers, but they could see the reality. So, for me, to answer your question, if nobody comes along, you go out there, you put yourself on the line, you try it, nothing sticks. Maybe you're crazy. It's not a good idea. Um, but the way to measure it is not how many people didn't. It's just that question. If you can get a small group of people that really believe in your idea, then I'd keep going. And in fact, I'd measure it by how much they believe in the idea rather than how many of them there are, because it's, you're not going to get a lot of people to see what you can see up front. I think it was Einstein that said, um, if at first your idea is not considered absurd, it's got no chance. Oh, really? He did all right, Robbo. I've had some brilliant <laughs> strategies all my life then and I've never followed one of them. <laughs> he goes all right. There's another one like that too, which I, I quite like too, which is, um, it, and it's, it's about, uh, you know, not being too too worried about telling people what you're doing. And their thing was, if, if your idea is truly new and innovative, you're going to have to shove it down people's throats yeah. before they'll believe it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I think the first line of that was, uh, don't worry about people stealing your ideas. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If, if it's a good idea, you'll have to shove it down their throats. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. I'm just interested in uh, on the leadership of a culture because I know we've got a lot of listeners who are senior execs or people who run small business who are in control of um, people. And also I would say, you know, just thinking, taking this, this thought and applying it to the home, to our own family team. One thing I've started including at the start of my speaking gigs is the fact that as a speaker, I'm not there to add more stuff into their day. And I read a quote by Bruce Lee, the famous martial artist, who said, it's not the daily increase, but the daily decrease. Hack away at the unessentials. And it's very interesting when you look into the eyes of people in the room because they automatically think that if someone's coming in to speak or to coach or to train, it's going to be more stuff to add in and more stuff to do. But quite often, it's the stuff you take out that can have the most profound effect to give them more time for the essential stuff. If that is true and you were thinking of a leader of an SME or even a large corporation, is there one or two things that you would suggest a leader take out of the culture in order to let the culture foster? That's a fantastic question. Oh, thanks, mate. He has them occasionally. (laughs) In fact, isn't that the one I wrote, Gary? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
thanks for sending, thanks for sending it through, brother. Yeah, I think probably what I would do that the way I would look at that is when when you start thinking about values. So mm. values are really important in, in in companies, and they pop up as being a massive thing in, in how people feel about it. Yet, when you talk to people about what values they have and and what they set out as their goal for the culture that they want. What I see a lot of is people describing, essentially going and describing the sort of world they want to live in rather than a core set of things that are really important to them achieving the brand and the, and what they're trying to do in the market. Mm. So I have a slide that I use, I think you've probably seen it go, which is like, lead with me and I'll forever be your brother. Yep. And the corruption of Shakespeare. And so for me, that's the critical thing is that if you're going to sit down and look at your culture, you don't go sit down and end up with a list that looks like teamwork, honesty, integrity, respect, you know, all the things that are on everybody's values list. What you do is you sit down and you go, what are we willing to hurt for? What do we all care about that means, and by hurt, I don't mean physically, I mean not enough sleep, not as much money as you could earn somewhere else, not as much time with your family, um, whatever it is that you're giving up to be here to do this thing. Why? What do we care about? And in the core of it, what are the few things that we all really want to fight for, that we're willing to fire people for, that we're willing to come in and, and, and sweat for? So when you say, what can you take out? What you can take out are those things that are there because you thought you should have them. So, you know, a classic one I like to pick on is integrity. So many people have integrity in their in their cultures list, and you mean integrity means doing what you say you're going to do when you say you're going to do it. That's awesome, and I'm sure there are some companies for whom that is actual a delivered value. I don't know about you, but I do my best to do what I can to do everything by the time I said I was going to, I fail every day. In fact, I reckon I fail every hour (laughs) (laughs) because I've always got more things to do than I could possibly get done. And things shift so much that I may have in good honesty said I I would be able to get to this and something else has never had to make a prioritization call, whatever. Now, the question is, depending on the type of work, depending on what we're doing, depending on the environment, that may be a killer or it may not. There may be another thing where, you know, in, in our culture, a big thing for us is is this idea of building better people geeks. So when we look at everything we do, we focus on what's the learning opportunity? How are we helping our clients learn? How do we do things? So everything that we think about is around this idea. And so that's in, incredible for us. And we use that as a lens that we look at everything. So in terms of taking out, it's take out the things that you've got there because somebody told you should have them. If they're not your values then don't have them. Yep. Allow yourself to be held to something else. And, you know, I use an example of if, if, you've, if you've seen any of those shows about professional kitchens, a lot of them are not very nice places. Mm. And I'm sure it's possible to run kitchens other ways. But for some of those, people do it because they're, they're willing to sacrifice it to achieve some food. You know, they mm. want to achieve a level of perfection. And the way they do it is they push themselves to an extraordinary length. And they're focused on it, and they do it, and they achieve it. And so I think it's, it's challenging yourself to say, well, what, what really matters, and how do we let go of the things that don't really matter and focus on the things that do? That is a fantastic, fantastic answer, mate. That's gold. Um, 
Judy, yeah, just to, um, let you, I know you've got a lot going on at the moment, so I'll let you go. I've got a couple of quick questions that I'm curious about. Um, I know you're, you're a very organised, very efficient, very, very learned, super smart guy. How do you, you organise your diary? How do you organise your day? Do you have a system or process you go through to get your day sorted? Um, I do, although I, I caveat this by saying I, don't, I think there are plenty of people that are, are more efficient, more organised, more disciplined <laughs> than I am. But um, So uh, the way that I work now, just because I always like listening to other people, so I'll do it on that basis, not that I, I think mine's anything special. And it's, it's a cobbled together collection of things that I've learned from lots of other people. Uh, what I like to do is sit down and write a piece of paper either the night before or the morning of and I write a series of sections so the first section I write is priorities and it's what are the three things that I should be focused on mm-hmm. uh, so you know um, it might be you know close this big account or do a close a fundraise or, or whatever it is uh, one that the second one on my list at the moment right now is uh, is, is articulate the strategy and that's just the thing that I'm working through with everybody making sure that we have one that we're all in a grant um, and then something else and these things are outcomes they're not tasks they're outcomes yeah. they're, they're yeah. big level things that I'll be thinking about for a period of time and I've just found that there's something really powerful and profound about writing that list every morning and it hasn't changed for two weeks but mm-hmm. it tells me these are the things, if I'm not doing anything else, this is what I have to be focusing on. And even if I am doing other things, this is what I have to be focusing on. And yeah. some days I don't get past the first item on my page. Mm-hmm. All I do is focus on that thing, but I'm okay with that because I've already defined it. So yeah. priorities first. Second, I write people and I just write down a list of the people that I want to make sure I contact or talk to today. And so once again, it's not a task list. It's not call John. It's just, okay, I need to check this thing with John. I'm going to say, John, I want to touch this. Doug, I want to touch on that. And I find that, I don't know why, but I find it useful to make that not a task list, but just uh, somewhere in the day, I have to have a communication with this person. Mm. Um, so I have a list of people and whatever it is that communications, I'm, whatever it is I'm trying to talk to them about. Um, then I have what I call do, which is anything that has to be done that day. And it's also where I store the things that pop up during the day. And I try and keep that short. I mean, I actually have a list of things to do, which is elsewhere. This is just my jog for the hopefully two or three things that I need to do. Um, And then I have a list called meetings and that's my meetings of the day. And so I write all that out, even though I have all my meetings in my Google calendar, I still write it all out. And I find it just useful to look at it and go, they're the sort of four things. So today I should be either thinking about or working on one of my priorities, talking to one of these people, doing one of these tasks or in one of these meetings. That's and then I try and use that to keep myself going. <laughs> That's fantastic. We will um, we'll put a little list of that in the show notes for everybody as well, just uh, in case they're driving. Um, do you journal? Are you a journaler? How, how do you record your ideas, thoughts? Do you journal, doodle? How do you capture stuff? Yeah. I'm, I'm a doodler rather than a journaler. I mean, I like mm. writing, but I, I find that I can only write, I have to sort of force myself to sit down and write. So I've often wanted to journal, but I haven't. Um, so I tend to just sort of keep scribbled notes as I'm going. And then I have, mm. uh, one of my uh, indulgences is I like nice um, 
you know, I, not necessarily moleskins. I try lots of different brands, but I, I like those little journal-bound books. I always like having one with me, um, yeah. not because I write neat notes, just because I like scribbling. Do you have a uh, do you have a favourite app for productivity, or do you have a favourite app overall? Um, yeah, I use Todoist on the productivity front. I use that just to keep my sort of backlog of tasks that I need to do. Um, probably my favourite app is actually the Kindle app because I like reading books when I'm on planes. A <laughs> um, couple of other uh, quick ones. Do you have any daily rituals or do you have like a morning ritual? Do you really have any daily rituals to, to keep you on track and keep your mojo working? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I study um, Qigong, Tai Chi, Baguazhan, and a lot of that is is breathing, um, and I, I believe that a lot of these you know, different paths end up in the same place. So you know, yeah. whether it's yoga, whether it's Pilates, whether it's Tai Chi, it's whatever you know people feel appropriate for. But that thing that allows you to stop, and and I know from my wife, who's an opera singer and also a, a PhD candidate in psychology, um, the breath is so fundamentally powerful. And what's really interesting is it's just little things like when you breathe out, you actually slow your heart rate down. So one of the great tricks is that if you make your out breaths longer than your in breaths, you naturally reduce your heart rate. And anything that allows you to stop and be mindful in a given day, I, I don't always achieve it, but I try and make that point of, you know, you have to come to still, you have to be still at some point in every day. And it's an incredibly recharging experience. Uh, when you can do it. And it's, it's sort of one of those things where you fall off for a while and then you don't notice it and yeah. you're just irritable. Yeah. Yeah. And then you sort of get back on and you're like, oh, I have to keep doing this because I feel so much better when I'm doing it every day, when I allow myself to be still. It's funny. I, I, I started a little bit of just five-minute meditation um, last mm-hmm. year towards the end of October, November sometime, and I sort of – it fell out, fell by the wayside over Christmas – and uh, the last couple of weeks, work's got really busy again, and so I've sort of found the time to start doing it again. And, and you sort of go, wow, I didn't realise it, but I did really miss that. It's, it's funny when you do mm. something like that for a while and then you don't do it, you actually realise what the benefits are, don't you? Mm. And then the other thing which attaches to the same thing, which is not a daily ritual, but you, know, you, you would understand this better than most, Gary, is, uh, is just getting out into country, nature. Yeah. It, it's... It's, yep. it's, it yep. is a, once again, you don't notice it till you're there and then you just get out and it's like, oh, <laughs> I've missed this. Just mm. one final question before we let you go, mate. As a parent, you've worked through the Hollywood thing. You're now doing this amazing work with the, the software with Culture Amp. If there is a parent listening to this and you wanted to raise a prince or a princess of possibility, Based on all the stuff you've seen, you've tried yourself with your beautiful wife, what's a tip or a tool or a lesson that you mm. think you could pass on to parents to help them raise kids that have stronger imaginations around creativity, innovation? One is, to, and, and this is the hard thing, we all struggle with it, is to recognise kids are naturally creative. They're naturally um, what characters, you know, they live in imagination. So you, you just have to allow the room mm. for that to happen. The, when it doesn't happen is because there's, you know, there's iPads, there's other things, there's stuff that means they don't have to get there. You, know, you leave kids alone in a room for long enough, they'll create a game. They'll play. And 
So there's an extension to that, which a good friend of mine, uh, James Leatham, who, who runs a, another startup here in, in Melbourne called Vendor Panel, he, he passed on to me something his sister says, which I love because it, it captures all of this, which is that when her children come to her and say, we're really bored, you know, kids are on board, she says, that's wonderful. I wish I was bored <laughs> because when you're bored, it just, if you could just be bored for just a little bit longer, just, just stay bored, an amazing thing will come. A great idea will come. And so I just love that idea of, you know, lean in as a, you know, as a phrase that's been used to not, but lean into boredom. <laughs> it's wonderful to be that's bored. Brilliant. brilliant. <laughs> oh, that is so good. Glad the interview just paid for itself. That's a beauty. <laughs> There you go. You can run with that one. Lean into boredom. Ah, oh, mate, I'm going to milk that one. That's, uh, I'll quote you. They always quote you. <laughs> well, it's not mine. You quote James for that one, but yeah. Uh, te- te- technicality. Um, <laughs> Didier, um, how can – I'm sure there are people who are going to want to know more about you uh, personally and guarantee there are businesses out there who, if they don't want to, they should <laughs> – get in touch with you. How do we track down Culture Amp and how do we track you down to get more of your um, your gold, mate? Uh, so the company Culture Amp is just www.cultureamp.com. That's cultureamp.com. Uh, and, you know, you can access all that. You, you'll see me there. Thankfully, with my name, it, I'm relatively hard to miss. So there's not that many DDAs as, around. <laughs> and, you know, email is just dda at cultureamp.com. So always happy to chat to people. You know, our, our mission is to create more people geeks. So if people want to talk people geekery, I'm, I'm, I'm always listening. <laughs> People geekery. Hey, Robbo, we should um, get this culture amp done internally here at the Mojo Radio Show. Just because <laughs> yeah, we could certainly do with it. <laughs> just to find out, you know, whether we're going to be together again in a year's yeah. time. Yeah, and, you know. yeah. What's our strategy again? I don't know. How do you spell strategy? And then we'll like broadcast. yeah i honestly this interview could run for two hours mate because i think you've got so much to share you're such a learned guy i love it when you roll out the quotes but it's not just what what really gets about you mate is it's not just the great quotes and the sophistication you have in that massive brain of yours but you're doing it and i think people need to keep a watch on culture and because there is going to be great news and i promise you Everybody listening, you will hear Culture Amp up there with the WordPresses and Evernotes and Atlassian and Airbnbs and all your other clients, Uber, uh, Culture Amp, because you, your time is right and I think you're doing great stuff, mate. So congrats to you and the other guys um, at Culture Amp. Thank you for taking time out during this very busy period to hang out with Robbo and I. Thanks, Gary. Appreciate it. Thanks for the, the chance to chat, as always. Thanks for your time, man. It was great. My pleasure. Help us get the Mojo Radio Show on the iTunes What's Hot list. Hit up the Mojo Radio Show and leave a comment now. Oh, and please... You are such a disappointing pair. Be gentle with us. So did you see what I did there? I just I just said mate instead of Didier all the way through. So I didn't... <laughs> <laughs> no, I did notice that. So what did you think of the show? Oh, awesome. He's just so switched on, isn't he? That's really clever. Super, super sweet. Every time I have coffee with him, or I'm mm. doing a speaking mm. job and he's there. We just talk endlessly about mm. stuff and he's dropping lines and quotes and information mm. and things mm. he's seen. And he is really a guy who has a thirst, a thirst for knowledge and a thirst mm. for next cracking idea. Next time you're having a coffee with him, invite me along and we can compare our Academy Awards. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. For show. Yeah, good. So, um, all right, we should, uh, that was a pretty big show. We should probably wrap up, right? Yeah, yeah. I just, you, anything else? I've just anything got else? one quick thing before we go. We, uh, we yep. remember a few weeks ago, it was just before Christmas, I think, we were talking about um, uh, Apple wrapping up the uh, the original iPod. Yes. If, uh, if I could give you one bit of financial advice right now, it would be to go out, <laughs> buy yourself an iPod or an iPhone or a, 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 um, an iPad. Don't take it out of the box. Just stick it away on a shelf or bury it right. in the ground or something. And once they yeah. discontinue them, pull them back out. Can I tell you why? Why is that? I why? kid you not, there is a brand new original Apple iPod selling on Amazon. Have a guess how much. I don't know, grand? 1500 bucks. Try $34,999.99. No way. Plus, mind you, because they've got to strag every cent they can out of it, $6.67 for shipping. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding. I kid you not. In fact, I'll give you the link to put up on uh, on the show notes. If someone's got a spare $35,000, you may be interested. But it's 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 got the original sealed box and all the rest of it. So, it's, you know, they've bought it from a shop and put it on a shelf somewhere. So, yeah, thirty-five grand. Mate, that's nuts. That is absolutely nuts. But I tell you what, you would have paid 200, 300 for an iPod back in the day. Yeah, that's right. Leave it in the box. So think about that. Say 300 bucks Mm. to 30, almost 35 grand. Yeah, over what? That's uh, a hell of a return, mate. Yeah, not bad at all, is it? Not bad. Not bad. By 10. Hey, um, hey, (laughs) before we wrap up, just one quick thing, and I think this is one of the coolest things. I've seen for ages. It's an app called Open Label, and I will put a link to it in the show notes. Mm. Now, last week on the show, we had uh, Paul Schickluna, who is an international bestseller, coach and speaker on health and wellness. Mm. We we spent a fair bit of time talking about labeling on products, didn't we? Yeah, a lot of time, and and really opened my eyes to a lot of things too. Yeah, and what's behind the products and the backstories and everything Mm. else. Mm. And in the light of the Nana's raspberry fiasco Mm. and how people are allegedly getting sick because of the contamination of the products, Mm. there is now an app and it's like a Wikipedia for food purchases. So what happens is you go into a supermarket, Mm. you have your app open label, you open it. Mm. You scan the barcode on a product and what happens is behind the scenes, you and me are putting everything we know about a brand Mm. into this Wikipedia. So what this Wikipedia style compendium Mm. that sits behind this app will tell you Mm. is all the political leanings of the company that is behind the brand or the labor practices or their commitment to sustainability or actually how how healthy the product is, what's really in it, mm. what, are, what are the stories that have maybe made the media. So where Wikipedia is punter-driven, this is a punter-driven encyclopedia that can tell you everything you need to know about a product you're standing in front of on the supermarket shelf. Fantastic. Only it's been written without any bias by either the brand itself or somebody reviewing it who hasn't been given the full details. And of course, punters are going to give it to you as punters do, which is Mm -hmm. straight up. And you're going to have millions of people pulling out stories, the good, the bad, the ugly, to put there. So you get a true... I I just think that is going to be an absolute cracker and that will change the way we shop. Yeah, absolutely. That's brilliant. 
And just quickly, just on Paul Shikluna's uh, episode from last week, I had a lot of feedback from people wanting to know more about the fasting thing that we we um, we glossed over quickly. So uh, we may have to get Paul back and have a bit more of a chat oh, right, about okay. that. Yeah, good. Yeah, a lot of interest yeah. in that. In fact, I think that's a very good, um, very good plan. Let's do that. Mm. For this week, though, I reckon that's about it. Done. Cheers. The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time. <laughs>